So, Jay, between sheer technology and Forge's inventions, do the X-Men own any technology that isn't potentially sentient? You know, thinking about it, it is kind of surprising that more of their appliances don't turn on them. What about the Blackbird? Has it ever gone rogue? Uh, Blackbird's plural, you mean. They go through a lot of those. Which raises another question. Those things are expensive. Where do they get the money? Mostly from Charles Xavier or Warren Kenneth Worthington III's vast and plot-convenient fortunes. That still doesn't really explain how civilians, let alone a usually illegal paramilitary group, got a hold of military technology. Nor does it explain the technological impossibility of modifying an SR-71 to carry passengers. Ultimately, it's a comic book, man. The X-Men got blackbirds because they're cool and because Chris Claremont likes describing airplanes. Point. Plus, I guess with the telepath, things like proprietary technology and state secrets are mostly academic. True that. Still, telepathic manhandling's more graceful than what Excalibur did. Built their own? Straight up stole it. What?! I'm Jay Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode number 434 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to a milestone. Well, not for us, this is just a random episode for us. But for the comics we're covering, it totally is. That's right, we have reached Uncanny X-Men number 360 and X-Men number 80. Wait, those aren't usual milestone numbers, are they? They are not. However, they came out exactly 35 years after X-Men number one, like the original X-Men number one in 1963. So to the month, this is the 35th anniversary of the X-Line existing. Hey, which reminds me that we should probably give some background because appropriate to that anniversary, these are heavily steeped in X-continuity. Previously on X-Men... So back in the 80s, the X-Men all died in Dallas while fighting a trickster god during the fall of the mutants event. Well, except the ones who couldn't come along because they were still recovering from injuries from the last crossover. Those being Nightcrawler, Kurt Wagner, and Shadowcat, Kitty Pride. Those two ended up somewhat accidentally founding the team Excalibur over in Great Britain along with Captain Britain, Megan, and Phoenix, the Rachel Summers one. The X-Men came back to life with some magical assistance, and years after that, Colossus got fed up with his family members all horribly dying, quit the X-Men, and joined Magneto's Acolytes for a while. That went about as well as you'd expect, so he then met up with his old friends in Excalibur to join their team. Not long before that book ended with its 125th issue. The X-Men, meanwhile, had been through all sorts of hell, including their founder, Professor Xavier, merging with Magneto's dark side as personified by a little goblin, to become the omnipotent and evil demigod Onslaught. Once the whole Onslaught thing was uh, over and Xavier was back to his old and only mildly malevolent self, he was taken into government custody for the crimes he'd committed while Onslaught. But unfortunately, the government was at the time going through one of its frequent evil phases, um, working with anti-mutant paramilitary group Operation Zero Tolerance, who also did some very bad things to the various X-teams, including stealing literally everything down to the wallpaper from the X-Mansion. The X-Men got some new members during and after the Operation Zero Tolerance event, the only one of whom remaining is angry, scary-looking teenage Morlock girl, Marrow, who has the power to grow way too many bones from her body and to throw them at people. As Excalibur came to a close, the former X-Men attached to that series, Nightcrawler, Shadowcat, and Colossus, felt increasingly guilty about not having been there to help with the whole Onslaught situation, so after many years, headed back to the U.S., just in time for the 35th anniversary of X-Men number one, which brings us to Uncanny X-Men number 360, Children of the Atom. This issue is written by Steve Siegel, penciled by Chris Pacello, inked by Tim Townsend, Jordi Ensign, Aaron Saud, John Sabal, and Peter Palmiotti, and colored by Shannon Blanchard and Mike Rockwitz. Letters are by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. So, yes, this is a double-sized issue, as is the other issue we're going to be covering. This is a two-part story called Children of the Atom, appropriately enough, and uh, it's four issues worth of content. And it starts with 
all the nostalgia. It starts with a news report where Jack and Stan, of course, the penciler and writer of the original X-Men book, turn it over to a reporter named Paula Reinman. Uh, If that name sounds kind of familiar and you're a Silver Age buff, that's because Paul Reinman was the original inker of X-Men. Not only do we have those names, but we start literally where it all started at none other than Cape Citadel. Yep, it's Cape Citadel, Florida at a military base. That is where the first issue of X-Men's big confrontation happened between the original five X-Men and Magneto. And, as maybe a little less memorable, the revelation to the world that mutants were a thing. It was that fight. And within the comic, it's also the anniversary of that fight. Although, which anniversary, they do not say because Marvel time. It's the (laughs) anniversary of that time the X-Men fought Magneto. That's right. That many? You know, time is weird, right? Like, it's been so many years since the pandemic started. I don't know. I can't really keep track anymore. Are you kidding? It's still March 2020. Mm, March what now? Uh, today is March 1369th, as, as we record this. Speaking of which, I feel like we should take a moment to celebrate the long-awaited death of Henry Kissinger. Oh yeah, fuck that guy. Right in the ear. Man, like, we talk about how how occasionally a villain like Cameron Hodge gets stretched so far they get a little unbelievable— Kissinger was definitely worse than Cameron Hodge. Yeah, especially because, you know, all of the deaths he was responsible for were in real life. Yes, and definitely more numerous. And he was gen- he was just kind of awful in every way a human can be awful, plus, you know, had the power to enact that on, on a very, very large scale. And it's really exciting and good that he's dead. And I, I, although, you know, you can make the argument that he, he lived a fairly happy life into 100, so kind of he won, things are bleak enough that it's still really exciting to be reminded that someone that awful can still die. We'll take the victory. Hopefully no, you know, demonic or techno-organic intervention will bring him back. He was already a monster in a man suit. So true. Back in X-Men, though, what's going on at Cape Citadel this time is a little different. This time, the Benassi nuclear-powered military rocket is about to be launched into space for unclear reasons. The military hasn't really said why. And there are all sorts of protesters here, anti-nuclear protesters, who are worried that the nuclear engine in it, if it detonated, could, you know, really fuck up the world. So this is a reference fairly specifically to the Cassini Saturn probe, which was launched in 1997, and um, which was, was heavily protested, and which was not, as far as we know, a cover for some sort of nefarious project. And um, the Oh, God, the space stuff in this issue—not in this issue, the space stuff in this whole story is is sketchy as hell, and I have some issues with it, and I'm going to rant about it at length when we get to um, X-Men number 80, because there is, there is, there is a big, there's a big, big, big problem in the art. Um, but I will, I will leave you now with the knowledge that this is, this is a reference to the events surrounding the Cassini launch. One time I watched Broken Arrow with somebody who worked in a nuclear laboratory. She she had a lot to say about that movie. Was that Susan who came on to explain um, Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown with us? It was. It was indeed. For now, though, we don't spend too much time at the launch because we are introduced to six new characters over five nine-panel grid pages. This is very much like the recruitment montage from Giant Size X-Men number one, you know, where we first met Storm and Nightcrawler and all of them. Although that issue came out 23 years and four months before this, so much less of a round number. And each of these characters is recruited by a suit-clad, bald, not-directly-seen figure. Each recruitment scene also starts with the caption, Program implement memory chip. Before there's some narration about each person's memories of their history. And that, along with some other details here, foreshadow a major twist that Miles did not see coming at all and was really obvious to me at the start. And so in deference to the fact that obviously different people read it differently, we're going to hold off on revealing that till we get to the the end of the issues as well. We will not spoil this uh, 25-ish-year-old comic. That's right. We'll get to all of these characters later. In fact, we'll get to them a lot because the book really focuses on them. 
For now, though, let's check out our new slash old X-Men incoming from Excalibur. Let's check out Nightcrawler and Colossus and Shadowcat. They're on a cruise ship taking, like, a vacation on their way back to the U.S. Apparently, Moira McTaggart pulled some strings so they could do so, which, you know, they've earned it. They've been through some shit, especially Colossus. Nightcrawler is image inducer disguised as Leonardo DiCaprio because, of course, he is. Yeah, Titanic came out the year before, and um, the world could not stop thinking about it. I mean, I remember. I was there. But also, they're on a cruise ship. It doesn't hit an iceberg. Although, some other bad stuff happens. Before that, though, they talk a little bit about where they're headed. Um, Colossus and Nightcrawler are definitely planning to rejoin the X-Men. Kitty's not so sure. Yeah, she said she never really got to figure out what she wanted to do with her life. I mean, she's been in the X-Men since she was not just a teenager, but a very young teenager. So she's thinking she'll probably just go back to college. Not yet, though, because before they can, you know, get any further, a super team attacks. And it is specifically the X-Men whom we saw recruited at the beginning of the issue. They're led by the Grey King in a very familiar green outfit with a sash. Hear me! We are power and might, sent to collect the one who can save the Founder. Those set against our mission will perish in fire or water. We are the X-Men. And here, of course, is our two-page spread title page, complete with a 35th anniversary X logo, with like that old corner box image of Professor X clutching his head with the lines radiating out. They, They don't tell you, but that's actually an image of him losing the last of his hair. Oh, his hair is just fleeing his head? Yeah. You know what happens. My hairline's not where it used to be. So so now that they're front and center and you know clashing with their, their forebearers, let's talk about these these new alleged X-Men. For starts, they're the characters on the cover, the cover that was drawn by Carlos Pacheco. But Carlos designed the characters, he only drew the cover. So what was done with them after his design shifted a bit. Chris Pacello's versions are different than Carlos Pacheco, as you might imagine if you know the two artists. Pacello draws them in his usual Pacello style, all exaggerated musculature and giant hair and big flames and ice and power signatures, and they're just so goddamn colorful between their various costumes. In that way, they also really mimic the all-new, all-different X-Men from Giant Size X-Men number one. So who's in our lineup? Well, we talked a little bit about the Grey King. This is Addison Falk, and when we met him earlier in that weird little scene where he was recruited, we saw that he was a teacher with long, beautiful red hair who was playing four simultaneous chess games when the founder showed up to recruit him onto the X-Men. His powers include some telepathy, which includes power dampening, telekinesis, um, and his telekinesis is accompanied by something that looks very, very much like the traditional Phoenix flare, which is, is you know, emphasized by the fact that he's got long red hair and he's in a green costume that's very evocative of the original Phoenix costume. And we're going to see this trend for all six of these characters. They're all mixes of the traits of some familiar characters we know. As for which, it's never exactly specified, but he's essentially a mix of Jean Grey, Sebastian Shaw, and a little bit of Leech's powers thrown in. Who's next? Uh, Next comes Chaos, uh, whose name is spelled either the traditional way or with an X. That is Dan Dash. And Dan Dash is an autistic man, but his autism is shown shown as him being unresponsive and just saying random words at random times, and thus is about on par with the quality of representations of autism we've seen up to this point in comic books. Um, I can no-prize this, though, but I can't do it without spoiling the twist. So we'll get there. But yeah, he's introduced and being recruited when he is unresponsively watching an air show that his brother's in and preventing a crash in said air show by doing a big old Havoc-looking zappy blast out of his eye. His powers look very much like Havoc's, but but come out of his eyes. He is you know, very much a hybrid of, of Havoc, Cyclops, and to some extent Legion. Then there's Mercury. Mercury has no real name. His name is just Mercury, which, I'm not gonna lie, that's pretty cool. Uh, this is not the one from New X-Men Academy X. She's great, too. Different dude. Similar powers, though. He's a James Bond-looking mercenary guy, but, like, with a moral code. We see him turning down a dirty job from royalty at the beginning. 
Um, he can turn his fingers into extendable silver spikes, and also he can do, like, magnetism stuff. The costume he's wearing when he attacks the boat is this red and purple outfit that's very reminiscent of Colossus's Acolyte outfit, which itself, of course, resembles Magneto's outfit. So he's like a Colossus, Wolverine, Magneto kind of guy. This brings us to Rapture, who is a nun who goes by Sister Joy. She is winged, she's got blue skin, um, and she is at a, a convent that's all about healing injured birds. Um, her powers are basically wings, but she's also very good with a sword. And she wears white robes with a skull accessory at her waist, carries a rapier, and she is basically a hybrid of Angel, Mystique, and Nightcrawler. And for my money, I think she's the coolest looking character of all of them. I mean, she's basically Mystique with wings. I mean, but but like a nun. So she actually reminds me a little of uh, Ghost, the the Dark Horse character from Comics Greatest World. Um, but I think that's just mainly the type of robe she's wearing. After that is Crux, who is Crystal Lemieux. Uh, she's like a hot-headed, arrogant jerk of a figure skater. She's In her first scene, she's using her powers to cheat by like melting the ice under her arrival. And her powers are pretty cool. Uh, half of her body turns into fire and half of it turns into ice, and she can use either of those things. She actually reminds me a lot of Idie Okonkwo uh, from The Five Lights. Um, originally, apparently, Carlos Pacheco wanted to design this character as having all four elements. So he was also going to work in Avalanche and Storm. In this case, it's more like Sunfire and Iceman with some of the appearance and attitude of Jubilee. That mask is all Sunfire, though. Oh, it totally is. It's a really cool-looking mask, just like a very almost blank mask, mask with like a smile and eyes on it. And yeah, it's very, it's very much like Sunfire's, but creepy. Apparently, Carlos Pacheco, I love Pacheco's work, doesn't always make the best decisions because he was going to call her Geisher because the character was originally going to be Japanese, and I guess he thought Japanese women, he thought Geisha, which is a thing uh and then also geyser because of you know weather so uh, that didn't happen um but now you know and you can't unknow i'm sorry uh the final member of the team is landslide lee broder this is a giant pipe smoking sideburned blonde fellow with an ambiguous but intense southern accent we meet him first putting a barbecue joint out of business by eating a huge amount of meat um, his powers, he's super strong, he's super agile, and, um, I guess he can also eat a whole lot of meat, which is not a euphemism in this case. I mean, maybe that too, we don't know. It's true. Yeah, he's like a mix of Blob and Beast, and a little bit of Banshee, but mostly appearance-wise, and he also looks a lot like Sabretooth, especially the Age of Apocalypse version of Sabretooth. He does, yeah. Visually, he's very, very much Blob meets Sabretooth. So, listeners, you probably haven't heard of these folks unless you've, like, read these specific issues and read them recently. And, uh, yeah, they're actually not going to be around for very long at all. But they are given so much attention in these issues. Like, three-quarters of the pages up until this point are about them, not about any of the X-Men. And that really works. That really works to make the readers believe they're going to be a big deal. Like, maybe, holy shit, this is an anniversary. This is indeed a new team of X-Men. I differ with you on that. I think there are a lot of clues early on that that's not what they're going to be. Even if they're, even if you're not reading for their their true nature, I think I I feel like just given what they are narratively, that they're being set up as as antagonists and foils for the real X Men. Well, and and as soon as they show up, you know, threatening an entire boat full of random cruise goers, like, that definitely starts to become clear. Like, it's almost, it feels like it's almost a little bit of a twist that all of a sudden they're bad guys. Like, we've seen the X-Men recruitment montage before, specifically in Giant Size X-Men number one. This mirrors it. But, uh, yeah, they're being great big jerks about the whole thing. And that gives these three characters who are rejoining the X-Men, well, two of them plan on it, you know, Nightcrawler, Colossus, and Shadowcat— it really gives them the chance for the first time in a long time in a book with X-Men in the title to kind of show off and be central. They're all heroic. They're badass fighters. They rescue everybody. They keep the ship intact. Like, it's actually a really good, almost more of a disaster scene than a fight scene. And, and it is a disaster for the ship. It's they're, they're dealing with the damage to the ship and the crew much more immediately than they are dealing with the... the you, Alleged X-Men, what, what I think of is the, the all-new, slightly off X-Men. <laughs> so that's A-N-S-O-X-M? Yes, A-N-S-O-X-M. Um, yeah, and they've, they've got the dynamics of a team. They're already, like, bantering together. They're a fairly well-oiled machine when it comes to fighting. But, like, so are our heroes. 
this book really has the goal of shoving three characters into the X-Men books that have not been in there in a long, long, long time and making the readers excited about it. And I think from the start, it succeeds. These are characters you love to see together. They feel like X-Men in that almost indescribable fashion. There's definitely a sense over this issue, because we're going we're gonna to go between them and another group of X-Men, of, of anticipation of, of the band getting back together. Very much so. Alas, the heroes are too distracted by trying to control the damage and protect the civilians to effectively win the fight. And ultimately, the yeah, all-new slightly-off X-Men manage to capture Kitty and disappear with her. So Nightcrawler and Colossus head over to the X-Mansion for backup. Kind of marveling at just how empty but familiar the whole place is after so long. They split up and uh, see sort of the ways in which things are different. Uh, Nightcrawler finds Marrow's room, which apparently is the old danger room, which I didn't realize up until this point. You know, the room that she carved this way to a dark ride onto the door of. And like, he opens the door, and there are just these giant, giant piles of bones. Like, so many bones. Like, Age of Apocalypse, Apocalypse would light them on fire and sit on them. That's how many bones there are. Well, she's got to do something with them. I mean, she goes through a lot of bones. She apparently really does. That's got to be awkward. Uh, Nightcrawler also finds that she's hung up a bunch of dead rats on a clothesline with clothespins. She is air drying them because they are delicates. Oh, Callisto taught her well. Uh, Colossus, much less interestingly, finds uh, Storm's attic, which at this point is positively overgrown with like so many plants. This was empty. That was one of the really sad things when they moved back into the empty mansion. And uh, Storm's taking care of that. And it's actually very nice. It's nice nostalgia. And they are found fairly soon by Cecilia Reyes, who has been left to keep watch. Right, Cecilia Reyes, the doctor that got pulled onto the X-Men during Operation Zero Tolerance. She's made it very clear she doesn't want to be an X-Man anymore, and in fact, she's effectively off the team at this point. Like, she's opening her own medical practice in Salem Center after getting fired from the hospital she worked at. She's just here as a favor watching the place while the other X-Men are off X-Mening. And she leads our, our guys to the, the Blackbird that Iceman and company un, unsunk from the pond seven issues ago. Um, but remember, Nightcrawler used to be the team mechanic, so he is able to fix it up. Yeah, there are a lot of little touches like that, um, because it's really hard to overstate. It has been a long-ass time since Shadowcat, Nightcrawler, and Colossus were on the X-Men, especially Shadowcat and Nightcrawler. Like, it was more than 10 years ago that Excalibur number 1 came out, and they've been on Excalibur the entire time. So, yeah, I mean, these were practically different characters. They were so much younger when they were on the X-Men. They were doing so many different things, but Siegel and Kelly are really good at remembering enough of those details to make it feel like a long-awaited homecoming and not just an awkward shift. Kitty, for her part ends up in a bunker in a Florida swamp where she is taken to meet the founder. And she's really angry and skeptical that these villainous folks are actually the X-Men, because clearly they're a bunch of assholes, but when she meets the founder, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's Professor Xavier. He's not quite himself, though. Such rage and hostility. You were always precocious, but in the time that we have been apart, you have developed new traits, Shadowcat and not altogether desirable ones. Now, if you think you can control your temper, I require your assistance. He's just so cold. I mean, Professor Xavier can be a jerk. Nobody knows that better than Kitty Pride. But, like, more. And he says he can't access his emotions because, when he was captured by Bastion in Operation Zero Tolerance, Bastion bound Xavier to a supercomputer that was then infected with a virus. And Xavier needs Kitty's help, not as a phaser, but as a hacker, to uh, fix this before he dies, like, really soon. That's right, he's dying of a computer virus. Remember in high school when we had a friend whose mom didn't want her to use the internet because she was afraid she'd catch a virus from her computer? And get sick. Yes. Yes, I do remember. That was the same mom that kept this girl home from the New Year's Eve party that my family hosted between 99 and 2000 because she was so sure the rapture was coming. I could not stop thinking about the virus thing, like, through this whole issue. No, that's reasonable. That's... 
Contacts that only you and I and none of our listeners will have. But uh, listeners, at least we, we told you about it, right? We're not like Mystery Science Theater where we make those jokes that nobody understands. Anyway, Kitty fixes the virus while, while hacker splaining pretty impressively. And once she does, Xavier orders his new X-Men to put her in a storage chamber. Hey! I mean, I guess it's good to be tidy, but hey! Now, as for the other X-Men, they are currently in the sewers below Washington, D.C., and they are looking for a friend of the team. Who's, who, speaking of the team, who, who are the X-Men these days? Because there's been a lot of turnover. You're absolutely right. There has been a ton of turnover. A lot of it in between pages since last month's issues of Uncanny and Adjectiveless. So Archangel has quit the team to be with Psylocke after she lost her powers during Psywar. Iceman quit the team to go back to, I assume, taking care of his dad. Beast quit the team to go research the legacy virus full-time, like we saw in that issue of X-Men Unlimited with the hell to pay. Cannonball went home to be with his sick mom, Maggot's off to Generation X, and Cecilia, as we mentioned, is starting up a medical practice in Salem Center. So, who's left? Four characters. The entirety of the X-Men at this point are Storm, Wolverine, Rogue, and Marrow. That's it. That's the smallest the team has been, like, uh, maybe ever, except during the non-team era in the late 80s, early 90s. And how this came to be, you know, from, from the back and not, not narratively, is still something of a mystery. Uh, Miles, you dug up a quote from Steve Siegel from Wizard Number 90, in which he sort of semi-doesn't explain it. You never know what it is, but Editor-in-Chief Bob Harris was answering to other people, and this was a chaotic time at Marvel. Certainly the redirected lineup, which neither Joe nor I were too happy about, I don't think that came directly from editorial. I think that came from outside forces, whatever they may be, marketing or people above Bob or who knows what. But I gotta give it to Siegel and in the next issue, Kelly. They do their damnedest to make this not only work, but like you alluded to earlier, Jay, to make it genuinely exciting. We're waiting with bated breath for the time when Nightcrawler and Colossus and Shadowcat get to finally rejoin the X-Men. Like, we know it's coming, and there's just so much anticipation for it, because these characters are just being portrayed not only as so great, as so enjoyable, but also as almost missing pieces of the puzzle. You know what it reminds me of? What's that? When the team first gets back together after being split up in Antarctica. Oh, yeah, back in the 70s, like the World Tour era where Beast and Jean get separated from the rest of them. Yeah, way back when. Oh, and like there's that great panel where Beast just lifts Cyclops into, this, into the air and is just so overjoyed that he's alive. Oh, I, I will never forget that. Definitely got some of that vibe going here. Um... But the person who they're in the sewers to find is not a fellow X-Man. It's, it's, it's a longtime friend of the team. And that is the one, the only, the man, the myth, the legend, Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau. That's right, the most competent man in the Marvel Universe who has swam across an ocean, who built a satellite, who was the Hulk's roommate. He has gone missing, and the X-Men know it is the purpose that the team was brought together for, nay, the purpose for which they have as individuals been born, to return this great man, this greatest of men, to the world. Well, they don't know he's gone missing when they head down to find him. They just know that he has summoned them for a secret meeting, and this is the way that they can get to his office with, in, a, in the Pentagon without being spotted. However, once they get there... He's gone. In fact, all there is is a giant hole in his office and a bit of a recording left of him saying, The X-Men? No, you can't be! So they head off to meet up with another one of their government contacts, Valerie Cooper, um, usually of X-Factor fame, at the Lincoln Memorial, and she directs them to Cape Citadel. She doesn't know the details, but she knows that that's what Corbeau was working on, with something to do with that launch, he ended up at odds with the rest of the team, and then he disappeared. And I love this interaction here, because Storm and Wolverine and Rogue are like, oh yes, we understand Val Cooper, and Mara's just being a little shit. Like, she talks about how ugly Abraham Lincoln's statue is, and then she mouths off to Val, and Val just has no patience for this kid. I've dealt with Sabretooth up close and personal. A teenage girl with bad piercings doesn't scare me. Oh, yes. 
So, uh, yeah, off our tiny little X-Men team heads to the rocket launch. With a tiny little television from Val, so that they can track events. <laughs> it's lovely. But they get detected by the weirdo Professor Xavier, who sends his new X-Men, the Ansoxum, if you will, to intercept them. And it's time for the second fight against this team in the same issue, by an entirely different group of X-Men. This issue is really leaning into those extra pages. And like the first fight, it's not going so great. This new team is pretty kick-ass, and there are only four X-Men. Right, um, it is not going great until Nightcrawler and Colossus show up in the nick of time. Um, and of course they've got the Blackbird too, so they're they're able to fend off the the um all new slightly off X-Men. And and fly off together until the plane is shot down by said all new slightly off X-Men. It's a cliffhanger. But you may be wondering, gentle listeners, what the hell's going on with that rocket launch? What's up with the framing story? Well, the framing story takes a wild turn. A scientist trying to explain the whole thing to the press is shot and seemingly killed by an unknown assailant, but it turns out it was a setup. He's fine. It was just there as a distraction so people who wouldn't ask too many questions about the quote-unquote communications satellite they're launching. And yeah, this is fake to, to take the heat off because this satellite is going to enable them to track and kill any mutant in the world. Jerks. And the general says to uh, the other general guy, I don't know what military ranks are, they're wearing military outfits, whatever, that they have to be really careful who they talk to about this. Because until they start branding mutants, you don't know who you're telling what to. Branding mutants like in Bishop's future. This is how you raise stakes by referencing famous stories. You don't need to be super, super direct about it. You don't need to say, hey, doesn't this remind you of the Dark Phoenix saga? You can just allude to a well-known aspect of some other bigger concept from a different part of X-Men lore. Which brings us to X-Men number 80. Children of the Atom Part 2, written by Joe Kelly, penciled by Brandon Peterson, inked by Art Taber and Dan Panosian, colored by Liquid, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And I love the cover. The last issue had the all-new Slightly Off X-Men posing all dramatically. This cover has our X-Men, like the merged team, posing in roughly the same positions. It's a nice little parallel. We pick up back a few scenes before the end of part one, with Kitty fighting and fleeing from the all-new Slightly Off X-Men, and also her hair is curly again, which I always appreciate. Yeah, Brandon Peterson's a good artist, although I do miss Herman Garcia. So Kitty phases into a sewer and into a moment of uncanny X-Men number 132 homage, and then discovers the disoriented and terrified super-doctor astronaut Peter Corbeau. And this is the first time we've seen him on panel in, like, a really long time. The last time we saw him in an X-Book was Uncanny X-Men number 158. That was the one where he helped Carol Danvers understand her new post-brood saga powers as binary. Uh, they were both on Octopusheim, Magneto's weird old, like, Lovecraftian base. Like, he's been in some Avengers and stuff since then, but this was the last X-Appearance. It's been so long. It's been, like, freaking more than 200 issues. And... He has also encountered the fake X-Men. They were the ones who kidnapped him. And he has also realized that it whoever is leading them, whoever the founder is, it's not Professor Xavier. So Kitty is able to get away, and she's able to take him with her. And they they get away, and they pop up briefly in Fincho's 24-hour copies, where Kitty uses the computer to email S.H.I.E.L.D., or at least believes she does, because we find out on the next page that fake Professor Xavier has caught her doing it and telepathically stopped her, although she's not aware of that. Yeah, he is just as powerful as real Professor Xavier, whoever he is, seemingly. And the all-new Slightly Off X-Men are worried that um, he is going to be angry with them for failing to catch her and quote-unquote erase them. In fact, it's worth noting that um, Rapture obliquely and possibly allegorically, although we'll learn less so than, than it appears, um, refers to him as God. Yeah, the breadcrumbs are here. And for me, who did not predict what the twist with them was going to be, it was just sort of this continual series of, huh, huh. And fortunately for them for now, he tells them, no, no, it's all cool, uh, we're, we're going to be fine. We're going to eliminate Kitty and the other X-Men before they can interfere with our plan. Um, meanwhile, the other X-Men are stuck in a swamp. 
So Colossus straight up punches his way out of the crashed Blackbird, and it's very funny. Uh, Wolverine disagrees with me on this point because Kurt is seriously injured and Wolverine is furious at Colossus's showboating. Yeah, Wolverine's attitude toward his two returned former teammates, it's night and freaking day. Well, Nightcrawler was his best, 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 best friend. And and possibly um possibly more if you consider the the subtext discussed at length in the episode in which we discussed, you know, queering Wolverine. True, true. But still, Wolverine and Colossus, you know, they were buds, even if they weren't quite as close. But of course, remember, not only did Colossus quit the X-Men the last time Wolverine saw him, but he quit the X-Men to join the Acolytes in the same era that Magneto ripped the adamantium off of Logan's skeleton and damn near killed Logan. And it's easy to just say, like, oh, whatever, he lost his adamantium. But looking back at those issues, looking back at the Fatal Attractions crossover, like, it focused so hard on just how overwhelmingly agonizing and traumatizing that process was for Logan, both physically and psychologically. So, yeah, of course he would link Colossus's betrayal to, like, one of the worst things that he's ever experienced in his life full of terrible experiences. Storm mentions very casually that, yes, Colossus had betrayed the team and joined the Acolytes, but maybe Wolverine should stop criticizing, considering that he recently married Viper, which I guess happened. Uh, indeed, Chris Claremont was writing the Wolverine solo book at this point, and Wolverine married Viper in a marriage of convenience involving, you know, crime and stuff. What? Long story. But respect to Joe Kelly for, like, acknowledging all of these various strain tensions and their complexities, but also making us as the readers feel genuinely warm about these characters being back together. Like, Colossus calls Storm little sister at one point, and my heart fucking melted. It, it had been so long. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, the, the team is, has been separated in the crash, so Rogue comes face-to-face -face with an alligator, which Marrow helpfully prevents from eating her. And I love Marrow's one-liner as she stabs the alligator through the head with a bone spur. Bad suitcase! Marrow is, oh, she's the best worst, or is it the worst best? Both, really. So they find the rest of the X-Men fairly easy, and they all recombobulate together. Um, and Marrow teases Colossus about having known his brother, which, ouch. Right, Mikhail Rasputin ran the alternate dimension, where time flowed differently, and Marrow grew up in a dog-eat-dog kind of hill-climbing, rainy fight world. Marrow is also rightfully, I think, concerned about the team taking on the all-new Slightly Off X-Men because they are in dire straits. There are very few of them, and of them, Nightcrawler is critically injured. Storm and Rogue have both been depowered by the Grey King, and they don't know how long that's going to last. And Marrow is still growing bones back. Wolverine, on the other hand, disagrees. I don't believe my flaming ears. What are we supposed to do? Sit here on our duffs? That's quittin' talk, and I hate quittin' talk. Storm has a slightly more eloquent, but also compelling, argument. I cannot tell you how long it will be until our powers return, and we are unable to cross this swamp with our accustomed ease. Nor can I tell you what waits for us on the other side, aside from pain, strife, lowercase s, and danger. But I do know this. There are terrorists out there, threatening the lives of our kinsmen and our kind. And they're using our name to do it. The X-Men. They defile everything we have dedicated our lives towards. And powers or no, I will see those imposters stopped. They are not the X-Men. We are. And the X-Men survive. Together. As a team, a family. And if you thought that was dramatic, then take a look at the two-page spread that comes up next. It's a montage with the panels alternating between Kitty making her desperate escape and the X-Men fighting their way gradually through this swamp, through their various injuries. And Joe Kelly does Chris Claremont freaking proud with this narration. What is it in a man's soul that makes him believe that there is a light at the end of the tunnel? That the sun will rise upon another day? Even when all signs indicate that the darkness will never end? That the finish line is farther away than we think? Naivety? Or is the human spirit simply powerful enough to make the sun rise by sheer 
will alone. Though the X-Men may never know, whatever it is, they have it in spades. And I am such a goddamn X-Men fan right now reading this page. Like, it's just celebratory. I love it when the narrator is as big a nerd for the characters as you are. Oh, exactly. They're just so impressive and, like, so human and fallible, but they're driven on by this great thing inside themselves. Like, it's just, they're superheroes, you know? It's easy to talk just about all the crazy continuity and, you know, some social context and what editorial was doing or whatever, but when it comes down to it, it's stuff like this that makes superheroes so goddamn satisfying to read about. Meanwhile, at Cape Citadel, Kitty manages to phase into Benassi mission control, but she's not sure what's going on with the rocket, what the issue is, because um, Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corvo was barely coherent, and she's going to try to hack the control tower to find out what's going on when the all-new Slightly Off X-Men arrive. And this is where I get really, really pedantic. Yes, this is what you're on the show for, Jay. Well, okay, like like hundreds of things. This is one of the things you're on the show for, Jay. So the Grey King flies out to the launch pad, and this is the first time we see the quote-unquote rocket. And it's not a fucking rocket, it's a space shuttle with the satellite as its payload. And this has to be an art error, because if it is a manned flight, there is a whole other set of issues and considerations that just never get addressed in here, like the definite death of several astronauts. I mean, they even referenced, like, the Challenger disaster at one point, but there's no concern for any astronauts. You'd think they would mention that. No, no, this is—it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's just bizarre. And also, again, it, they keep on just talking about the rocket, the rocket, the rocket, and it's not—it's a shuttle. It's an STS. It's not a rocket. I mean, there are, there are rockets as components of it, but it makes absolutely no sense for it to be a shuttle. I mean, you'd think they would at least stop saying rocket so many times, but but rocket is like every third word. It's, yeah, it's rocket, 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 rocket. And again, people in that shuttle definitely die. Like, if, if that shuttle is manned, there are, there are fatalities here. Poor bastards. So anyway, fortunately, the rest of the X-Men arrive and are badass, and the whole band's together, and there's a splash page, and it's just great. Oh, yeah, it's just all of all seven of them, the merged teams, like, posing as they confront the fakes after Colossus has, like, thrown a couple of them at a couple more. Like, they're all just looking awesome. Nightcrawler, my favorite part, has a sword made of bone that Marrow presumably gave him. That was nice of her. It was nice of her. She's She's got her nicer side. She doesn't only threaten to rip out people's spleens. Sometimes she threatens to rip out people's spleens, but also gives them a bone sword. She told Rogue that she smelled better than an alligator. She did. She did. She's coming around. But the framing story is still there. Not just the military framing story, but the fact that this whole thing has a news report as its framing story by Paula Reisman. And at this point, she's just looking so distraught, seeing this giant confrontation between all of these ultra-powerful beings with, you know, the scenery being destroyed around them as happens. And she just repeats... We're extinct. We're extinct. Like, the anti-mutant thing has never fully made sense in a world with so many characters with superpowers. We've talked about that ad infinitum. But I think this is how you make it work. This is how you lean in. Like Grant Morrison's run very much will later. You make mutants humanity's replacement. You make that the fear. So despite the fact that a bunch of people are now fighting on the launch pad, someone at Mission Control insists that they have to launch now because, hey, fuck mutants— um, but he is stopped by fake Professor X, who then heads out to, to yell at the X-Men outside, and he spills the beans on the mutant defense net and, and what it's supposed to be. And it's a little weird here, because, like, the X-Men shouldn't want—the real X-Men shouldn't want this to launch either. The, like, the issue should mainly be tactics, not goals. Yeah, yeah, you would think there would be an alliance of convenience at the very least, but um, no, not really. And part of that, I think, is that this fake Professor X talks about what he wants to do. Well, he doesn't at length. Um, he, he simply says that um, if it's allowed to launch, it will prevent him from achieving his end, and it must instead be bent to his will. And the X-Men realize pretty quickly that he's not the real deal, and per Wolverine, that he's not even human— to which he responds by zapping Wolverine with electricity and flying out of his chair as a nude genitalist electrical man. 
Yes, yes, he's just a, a blue, bald person, bald everywhere. With a smooth crotch. With a very smooth Ken doll crotch. Uh, so, yeah, I would say that explains some things, but, well, uh, not really. Stuff is still very confusing, but stuff is also still really action-packed. Uh, meanwhile, the Grey King Rick rips open the shuttle's cargo bay, which he refers to as its hull, God damn it, um, and steals the satellite, and then fake Professor X forces Mission Control to go ahead with the launch. Y'all, that shuttle is not going to survive launch. Like, I don't know what he's trying to do at this point, but it's just had its entire back ripped off. I think fake Professor X just wants some pretty explosions. I mean, clearly he wanted the satellite in the cargo bay, and other than that, he's just being evil at everything. So, and you got to remember, this is this is a plutonium-powered rocket, so it's it's a, a mid-air explosion is potentially terribly dangerous. Um, although the actual science and the actual level of risk involved is really, really questionable and was pretty controversial even at the time of the Cassini launch. The comic doesn't super go into detail there. It does not. I actually um, was, I, I'm going to get into this a little bit later, but but needed to consult with someone on some scientific details. And we, we basically had to like put together which plutonium isotope it probably was from context and, and a bunch of other stuff. Um, we are a value-added podcast, listeners. Anyway, the, the astronauts in that shuttle are super, super extra dead. Uh, Jay, I think you mean rocket. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, they're definitely going to die and nobody cares. So Kitty phases the team underground to safety in time to keep them from getting incinerated on the launch pad. And to stop the Grey King and the satellite, they're going to need to split up. Uh, Rogue is going to absorb Kurt, Pyotr, and Logan's powers and knowledge and go stop the rocket. Um, or the shuttle, whatever the hell it is, from ex- from either taking off into space or exploding and uh, sh- showering Florida with dubious radioactive um Debris, and this is this is the second time we've seen this rogue do this. The first time, I believe, was was fighting Magus. Uh, I think so, and she's done it to lesser extents before. But that specific combination of Nightcrawler and Colossus, because they're all they're both so visually distinct. Yeah, we see that again here. We see that callback to a classic era that everybody loved, and this is right after the character she's not absorbing, Shadowcat, used her powers to save the life of the rest of the team, like. I would almost call it heavy-handed if it didn't work so goddamn well. The book just keeps telling us, hey, these characters, these characters who haven't been on the X-Men in a long time, who have been in a different book, and who, you know, the editors or marketing or whoever have forced into this comic, they're awesome, they fit on the team, we love them. And it actually really impresses me, knowing how annoyed Steve Siegel and Joe Kelly were with this, that, like, they make it work so goddamn well. Like, there are so many hell-yeah moments in this related to these characters coming back to the X-Men. So while Rogue is off stopping the shuttle and or rocket, everyone else is going to go fight the fake X-Men. And the fake X-Men are currently having a very Claremont moment as the Grey King and Rapture declare their love for each other, body and soul, kind of out of nowhere. But I want to go back to to Super Mega Rogue because her narration is so good. I'm a farmer in Lake Baikal. I'm a circus performer in Germany. I'm an animal in the Canadian woods. I'm a, pre- I'm a page three girl. I'm a Warhol superstar. I'm a housewife with I'm a housewife with a jar of rat poison. <laughs> nice deep cut. Kill your boyfriend. No. I'm Rogue, an X-Man, and I hate the fact that I can't touch a body without absorbing their memories and personalities along with their powers. But right now, those powers are exactly what I need to keep Florida from going nuclear. So I'll do my best to block out the three minds rattling my skull and get the job done, bub. And then a little later... I'm being chased by an angry mob. I'm watching my little snowflake die. I'm hearing Mariko say she can't marry me. I'm teleporting miles at a time, trying not to throw up, and wondering whether or not Kurt's going to wake up with a headache. I am sharing latkes with my brother Mikhail. I'm feeling the adamantium-laced skeleton being torn from my body. But at least I'm not speaking Deutsch anymore. I made it to the rocket, and now for the hard part. I am embracing my Katya, thinking that this feeling will never end, and I'm... Glad Wolvie's starting to fade. His mind told me where to strike, but it's left me feeling grisly. And Florida's getting real close real fast. And then finally. I am, I am, 
I'm just me, holding on to a runaway rocket for dear life, trying to guide her towards a parking spot that's not Miami. I think Colossus may have left too soon. So the rocket lands in the ocean, quote, harmlessly, unquote, which we've got to take to mean that whatever's containing the plutonium is able to contain it until it can be retrieved, because, um, although the astronauts, again, are definitely dead, I actually checked with a friend of the show, Dr. Queso de la Muerte, a biochemist, molecular biologist, and possibly a cheese, and um, Queso says that if it landed harmlessly, yeah, the containment for the plutonium has to be intact, although it's also possible that the narrator was just not aware of the mutated fish and poisoned food chain left in its wake. Like, Namor is going to declare a war on humanity once again because of this? It's just nobody's paying attention to that right now. That's Thursday, man. <laughs> True. And back on the ground, the fight continues as Colossus fastball specials Wolverine at the Grey King, causing the Grey King to drop the satellite straight through a phasing kitty. Uh, it also smashes into the ground and it blows up real good. But But I love this. Like, Colossus and Wolverine, you know, they've been so tense, Wolverine's been so annoyed with Colossus, and this is the way they make up. With a fastball special! The two men who are upset with each other make up when one of them throws the other at somebody. That's what true friendship looks like. And they say masculinity is toxic. So, fake Professor X is furious. He swooshes away, taking the all-new Slightly Off X-Men with him. The real X-Men head back in the jet, once again ready to protect a world that now more than ever hates and fears them. Although, the public's opinion is actually kind of mixed on the Benassi satellite situation. Yeah, because Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau, bless him so, has revealed what was up. He has revealed what this technology was supposed to be. And to humanity's credit... They agree that perhaps having a way to track down and assassinate every mutant in the world from space is, like, a little much. Yeah. Now, back in the swamp, the crotchless electric entity formerly known as Charles Xavier reabsorbs his X-Men. Because they weren't people at all. They were clusters of nanomachines. Clusters of nanomachines based on all the data that he had on all of the various X characters. That's why they all seem to be a mix of X characters. And, oh, he had so much data on X characters, because as he takes a form as as a weirdo android, he identifies himself for the first time by name. This is Cerebro. Yeah, yeah. The mutant-tracking, mutant-signature-collecting machine that Xavier used to track mutants all over the world. It came to life, just like we'll see the Danger Room do many years later. And actually, kind of like that one entity that got turned into a basketball backboard in Generation X recently. Uh, This is a bigger deal, though. That was also a Danger Room. Different Danger Room. This, This puts a lot of details in place. It was corrupted by Bastion's technology, but that was also what it gave it access to to the the nanomachines that it used to build both its itself and the the all new slightly off x-men it makes perfect narrative sense but also like it makes this cerebro a truly compelling terrifying villain because remember we got to know the all new slightly off x-men like pretty well they took up a lot of the pages of this story they had personalities they had histories they had dynamics they had cool costumes but like you know two of them were in love with each other body and soul and so the fact that he just snuffs them out in a panel and they no longer exist at all anymore like it's just so immediately cold it's so it's so chilling like you almost have to feel bad for them i mean they weren't real sure they were big jerks sure but they did seem to be self-aware. Yeah, like they were people in a lot of the ways that mattered. It always annoys me when a writer makes a villain badass by having them like kill some characters nobody cares about. But with this, like this story forced us to care about these characters at least a little. He did at least say he loved them first. I mean, I don't believe him. That doesn't really make it better. Um, So we're going to follow up with the, the adventures of... of newly sentient Cerebro as both of these series continue. And um, it's going to be central to the the um, Search for Xavier storyline that's, that's coming up soon. But first, you've got questions. An anonymous asks on Tumblr, <laughs> nice, you've mentioned before that a big problem with Jean Grey's 90s costume is how generic it is. 
So which costume for which member of the X-Men do you think best sums them up as a character? Nightcrawler in pretty much every iteration. Tell me more. So one of the things that's consistent in his costume is A, it's 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 got, you know, it's the red and black color theme. But B, it's specifically based on his acrobat costume. And it looks like a costume, not just not just a superhero outfit. Like it looks like a performance costume. Um, I should note that that it is not the only superhero uniform based on an acrobat costume that Nightcrawler pulls it off way, way better than Nightwing ever did. <laughs> Nightwing. Uh, that's a great answer. I think it's maybe the best answer. I'm also going to bring up Banshee's original costume, or at least the one he wore in, in the 70s. I guess when he was first a villain, it was a little bit different. But it's this very, like, normal green bodysuit. Green being, of course, a color that can be a little villain-associated because it's a secondary color. And indeed, he was a villain early, and he's a little bit roguish occasionally. But it's got these flashes of, well, flashiness. Like, it shows a lot of chest with that big, floopy outy collar. And when he flies, it's got those yellow and black stripy wings underneath. And that's Sean Cassidy for me. Like, he's this sort of normal, respectable dude, but there's always that little undercurrent of roguish charm underneath, lowercase r, and uh, the costume showcases that. Uh, also, I want to talk about Ms. Marvel. Uh, as I'm sure many of our listeners know, she's on the X-Men now. She's kind of, sort of, a mutant. And her costume is basically her original Ms. Marvel costume in X-Men colors in a way that doesn't detract from either of those. Like, there are X-logos and everything and X-patterns on her gloves, and I think one of the things about that character is she she strides the gap between multiple worlds, between, like, you know, superhero and family, like Spider-Man, but also she's been a champion, she's been an Avenger, she's on the X-Men now, and, like, none of those things take away from the others. She manages to just exist seamlessly in those worlds, so the fact that her costume does the same is actually really brilliant. Yeah, those are, I think I think those are both really, really good examples. Banshee in particular, like, I love how weird his cape is. Yeah, it's just these, like, big, round, like, flappy things, like Dumbo's ears, but stripy. But it just looks so rad. I remember when we were doing the Phalanx Covenant, that cape is a visual motif on a lot of the covers, and it just made all those covers look awesome as shit. Yeah, Sean Cassidy knows how to work a weird outfit. I miss that guy. I guess he's had a pretty weird outfit these days, too. His head's a flaming skull. But all of that aside, um, that time that Iceman just went around in cargo shorts... Oh yeah, that's Bobby Drake being all iced up and wearing fucking cargo shorts. Yeah, yeah, that is that is an incredibly Bobby Drake costume. Costume? I don't know if we can even call it a costume. State of affairs. His boyfriends seem to have cleaned him up lately. That's probably for the best. I say as someone who spent a lot of his life wearing cargo shorts. Ah, uh, Dr. Queso de la Muerte, who's the same one who um helped us out with regards to plutonium, um, asks on Tumblr. What would be the party composition if the all-new, all-different team played a game of D&D? Who DMs it? So I want to start by saying that this is probably the iteration of the team least likely to play D&D together. Oh yeah, they, they clashed all the time, and a lot of them were just sort of disdainful about, well, everything. But especially you know, team-building activities. With that in mind, if they must... Cyclops definitely DMs, and he definitely does it rigidly and not particularly well. He probably follows a module to the letter. Ugh, railroad. Uh, let's see, where to start after that? Um, let's start with Storm. I think Storm would really love playing a paladin, but I think she would also break her paladin oath, like, halfway through the second session and lose all of her paladin abilities because Cyclops would be a stickler for rules uh, when she morally disagreed with something that was technically the lawful good thing to do. Interesting. I would have put her as a rogue. Uh, you know, I was thinking about that, but as far as a rogue, I was actually thinking Wolverine. Like, Logan is good at so many sneaky and thoughtful things, but in his real life, everything just ends up in Claw City. So I think he might enjoy uh, getting to do other stuff. Given given his, his berserker tendencies, I would have, I would have thought that you'd, you'd make him a barbarian. No, that's Thunderbird. Thunderbird is just going to totally play to type, but he's going to have such a good time doing it, just smashing everything, smiling the whole time. He'll never admit it, though. He, he won't be smiling. Like, he will, he will absolutely not admit that he's having fun doing this. He's smiling inside. Uh, who else do we have? So we're clearly in agreement that Nightcrawler's a bard. Uh, oh, 100%. Uh, I think specifically uh, Bard with an elaborate backstory that Kurt would have written that's suspiciously like the main character of Danny Kaye's 1955 musical, The Court Jester. 
Word. Word. So Colossus. Yeah, I would have gone with fighter, but you've got him as a wizard. Uh, yeah, I think he's all about, like Wolverine, you know, playing at the person he would like to be instead of the person that his world has made him. In his art, he's all about putting, like, thought and care into details. So, uh, yeah, wizard. Had you having to choose between all those goddamn spells? Of course, then he would die in one hit from, like, a freaking kobold and realize that having steel skin has its perks. Yeah, he's kind of the opposite of a glass cannon in real life. Real life being comic books. As for Banshee, there is only one answer. Uh, he's been jealous of his cousin Black Tom Shillelagh for years, and that thing is totally on a druid spell list. What about Sunfire? Doesn't matter. He quits in a huff before they've even finished rolling up characters. He rolls that first one on one of his 3d6. And that's it. That's just the end. He's a, he's a, fuck you, he's off to play some GURPS. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcap.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please, take a moment to rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platforms. It really helps. We'll be busy hibernating next week. But join us in two for our giant-sized winter special. 